Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Wonderful Adventures of Nils by Selma Lagerlof, translated by Velma Swanston Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gerald Moe, Tucker, Georgia. The Wonderful Journey of Nils, Witzkovel. Saturday, March 26th. Two days later, another strange thing happened. A flock of wild geese came flying one morning and lit on a meadow down in eastern Skane, not very far from Vitzkovel Manor. In the flock were thirteen wild geese of the usual gray variety and one white goosey gander who carried on his back a tiny lad dressed in yellow leather breeches, green vest, and a white woolen toboggan hood. They were now very near the eastern sea, and on the meadow where the geese had alighted the soil was sandy, as it usually is on the sea coast. It looked as if, formerly, there had been flying sand in this vicinity which had to be held down, for in several directions large planted pine woods could be seen. When the wild geese had been feeding a while, several children came along and walked on the edge of the meadow. The goose who was on guard at once raised herself into the air with noisy wing-strokes, so the whole flock should hear that there was danger on foot. All the wild geese flew upward, but the white one trotted along on the ground unconcerned. When he saw the others fly, he raised his head and called after them, You needn't fly away from these, they are only a couple of children. The little creature who had been riding on his back sat down upon a knoll on the outskirts of the wood and picked a pine cone in pieces that he might get at the seeds. The children were so close to him that he did not dare to run across the meadow to the white one. He concealed himself under a big dry thistle leaf and at the same time gave a warning cry. But the white one had evidently made up his mind not to let himself be scared. He walked along on the ground all the while, and not once did he look to see in what direction they were going. Meanwhile they turned from the path, walked across the field, getting nearer and nearer to the goosey gander. When he finally did look up, they were right upon him. He was so dumbfounded and became so confused that he forgot he could fly and tried to get out of their reach by running. But the children followed him, chasing him into a ditch, and there they caught him. The larger of the two stuck him under his arm and carried him off. When the boy, who lay under the thistle-leaf, saw this, he sprang up as if he wanted to take the goosey gander away from them. Then he must have remembered how little and powerless he was, for he threw himself on the knoll and beat upon the ground with his clenched fists. The goosey gander cried with all his might for help. Thumbietot, come help me! Oh, Thumbietot, come and help me! The boy began to laugh in the midst of his distress. Oh, yes, I'm just the right one to help anybody I am, said he. Anyway, he got up and followed the goosey gander. I can't help him, said he, but I shall at least find out where they are taking him. The children had a good start, but the boy had no difficulty in keeping them within sight until they came to a hollow where a brook gushed forth. But here he was obliged to run alongside of it for some little time, 
before he could find a place narrow enough for him to jump over. When he came up from the hollow, the children had disappeared. He could see their footprints on a narrow path which led to the woods, and these he continued to follow. Soon he came to a crossroad. Here the children must have separated, for there were footprints in two directions. The boy looked now as if all hope had fled. Then he saw a little white down on a heather knoll, and he understood that the goosey gander had dropped this by the wayside to let him know in which direction he had been carried, and therefore he continued his search. He followed the children through the entire wood. The goosey gander he did not see, but wherever he was likely to miss his way lay a little white down to put him right. The boy continued faithfully to follow the bits of down. They led him out of the wood, across a couple of meadows, up on a road, and finally through the entrance of a broad alley. At the end of the alley there were gables and towers of red tiling, decorated with bright borders and other ornamentations that glittered and shone. When the boy saw that this was some great manor, he thought he knew what had become of the goosey gander. No doubt the children have carried the goosey gander to the manor and sold him there. By this time he's probably butchered, he said to himself. But he did not seem to be satisfied with anything less than proof positive, and with renewed courage he ran forward. He met no one in the alley, and that was well, for such as he are generally afraid of being seen by human beings. The mansion which he came to was a splendid, old-time structure with four great wings which enclosed a courtyard. On the east wing there was a high arch leading into the courtyard. This far the boy ran without hesitation, but when he got there he stopped. He dared not venture further, but stood still and pondered what he should do now. There he stood, with his finger on his nose, thinking, when he heard footsteps behind him, and as he turned around he saw a whole company march up the alley. In haste he stole behind a water-barrel which stood near the arch and hid himself. Those who came up were some twenty young men from a folk high school out on a walking tour. They were accompanied by one of the instructors. When they were come as far as the arch, the teacher requested them to wait there a moment, while he went in and asked if they might see the old castle of Witzkovel. The newcomers were warm and tired, as if they had been on a long tramp. One of them was so thirsty that he went over to the water-barrel and stooped down to drink. He had a tin box, such as botanists use, hanging about his neck. He evidently thought that this was in his way, for he threw it down on the ground. With this the lid flew open, and one could see that there were a few spring flowers in it. The botanist's box dropped just in front of the boy, and he must have thought that here was his opportunity to get into the castle and find out what had become of the goosey gander. He smuggled himself quickly into the box, and concealed himself as well as he could under the anemones and colt's foot. He was hardly hidden before the young man picked the box up, hung it around his neck, and slammed down the cover. Then the teacher came back, and said that they had been given permission to enter the castle. At first he conducted them no further than the courtyard. There he stopped and began to talk to them 
about this ancient structure. He called their attention to the first human beings who had inhabited this country, and who had been obliged to live in mountain grottoes and earth caves, in the dens of wild beasts and in the brushwood, and that a very long period had elapsed before they learned to build themselves huts from the trunks of trees, and afterward how long had they not been forced to labor and struggle before they had advanced from the log cabin with its single room to the building of a castle with a hundred rooms like Witzkovel. It was about three hundred fifty years ago that the rich and powerful built such castles for themselves, he said. It was very evident that Witzkovel had been erected at a time when wars and robbers made it unsafe in Skane. All around the castle was a deep trench filled with water, and across this there had been a bridge in bygone days that could be hoisted up. Over the gate arch there is, even to this day, a watch-tower, and all along the sides of the castle ran sentry-galleries, and in the corners stood towers with walls a meter thick. Yet the castle had not been erected in the most savage wartime, for Jens Brahe, who built it, had also studied to make of it a beautiful and decorative ornament. If they could see the big solid stone structure at Glimmingy, which had been built only a generation earlier, they would readily see that Jans Holgersen Ulfstand, the builder, hadn't figured upon anything else, only to build big and strong and secure, without bestowing a thought upon making it beautiful and comfortable. If they visited such castles as Marsvin's home, Snogiholm, and Ovid's cloister, which were erected a hundred years or so later, they would find that the times had become less warlike. The gentlemen who built these places had not furnished them with fortifications, but had only taken pains to provide themselves with great splendid dwelling-houses. The teacher talked at length, and in detail, and the boy who lay shut up in the box was pretty impatient, but he must have lain very still, for the owner of the box hadn't the least suspicion that he was carrying him along. Finally the company went into the castle, but if the boy had hoped for a chance to crawl out of that box, he was deceived, for the student carried it upon him all the while, and the boy was obliged to accompany him through all the rooms. It was a tedious tramp. The teacher stopped every other minute to explain and instruct. In one room he found an old fireplace, and before this he stopped to talk about the different kinds of fireplaces that had been used in the course of time. The first indoors fireplace had been a big flat stone on the floor of the hut, with an opening in the roof which let in both wind and rain. The next had been a big stone hearth, with no opening in the roof. This must have made the hut very warm, but it also filled it with soot and smoke. When Witzkovel was built, the people had advanced far enough to open the fireplace, which, at the time, had a wide chimney for the smoke, but it also took most of the warmth up in the air with it. If that boy had ever in his life been cross and impatient, he was given a good lesson in patience that day. It must have been a whole hour now that he had lain perfectly still. In the next room they came to, the teacher stopped before an old-time bed with its high canopy and rich curtains. Immediately he began to talk about the beds and bed-places of olden days. 
the teacher didn't hurry himself, but then he did not know, of course, that a poor little creature lay shut up in a botanist's box and only waited for him to get through. When they came to a room with gilded leather hangings, he talked to them about how the people had dressed their walls and ceilings ever since the beginning of time, and when he came to an old family portrait, he told them all about the different changes in dress, and in the banquet halls he described ancient customs of celebrating weddings and funerals. Thereupon the teacher talked a little about the excellent men and women who had lived in the castle, about the old Brahes and the old Barnicos of Christian Barnico, who had given his horse to the king to help him escape, of Margareta Ascheberg, who had been married to Kiel Barnico, and who, when a widow, had managed the estates of the whole district for fifty-three years, of Banker Hagemann, a farmer's son from Witzkovel, who had grown so rich that he had bought the entire estate, about the Stjernsvards, who had given the people of Skane better ploughs, which enabled them to discard the ridiculous old wooden ploughs that three oxen were hardly able to drag. During all this the boy lay still. If he had ever been mischievous and shut the cellar door on his father or mother, he understood now how they had felt, for it was hours and hours before that teacher got through. At last the teacher went out into the courtyard again, and there he discoursed upon the tireless labor of mankind to procure for themselves tools and weapons, clothes and houses and ornaments. He said that such an old castle as Witzkovel was a mile-post on time's highway. Here one could see how far the people had advanced three hundred and fifty years ago, and one could judge for oneself whether things had gone forward or backward since their time. But this dissertation the boy escaped hearing, for the student who carried him was thirsty again, and stole into the kitchen to ask for a drink of water. When the boy was carried into the kitchen, he should have tried to look around for the goosey gander, he had begun to move, and as he did this, he happened to press too hard against the lid, and it flew open. As botanists' box lids are always flying open, the student thought no more about the matter, but pressed it down again. Then the cook asked him if he had a snake in the box. "'No, I have only a few plants,' the student replied. "'It was certainly something that moved in there,' insisted the cook. The student threw back the lid to show her that she was mistaken. See for yourself, if—but he got no further, for now the boy dared not stay in the box any longer, but with one bound he stood on the floor, and out he rushed. The maids hardly had time to see what it was that ran, but they hurried after it nevertheless. The teacher still stood and talked when he was interrupted by shrill cries, "'Catch him! Catch him!' shrieked those who had come from the kitchen, and all the young men raced after the boy, who glided away faster than a rat. They tried to intercept him at the gate, but it was not so easy to get a hold on such a little creature, so luckily he got out into the open. The boy did not dare to run down toward the open alley, but turned in another direction. He rushed through the garden into the back yard. All the while the people raced after him, shrieking and laughing. The poor little thing ran as hard as ever he could to get out of their way, but still it looked as though the people would catch up with him. 
as he rushed past a laborer's cottage, he heard a goose cackle and saw a white down lying on the doorstep. There, at last, was the goosey gander. He had been on the wrong track before. He thought no more of the housemaids and men who were hounding him, but climbed up the steps and into the hallway. Further he couldn't come, for the door was locked. He heard how the goosey gander cried and moaned inside, but he couldn't get the door open. The hunters that were pursuing him came nearer and nearer, and in the room the goosey gander cried more and more pitifully. In this direst of needs the boy finally plucked up courage and pounded on the door with all his might. A child opened it, and the boy looked into the room. In the middle of the floor sat a woman who held the goosey gander tight to clip his quill feathers. It was her children who had found him, and she didn't want to do him any harm. It was her intention to let him in among her own geese had she only succeeded in clipping his wings so he couldn't fly away. But a worse fate could hardly have happened to the goosey gander, and he shrieked and moaned with all his might. And a lucky thing it was that the woman hadn't started the clipping sooner. Now only two quills had fallen under the shears when the door was opened, and the boy stood there on the door sill. But a creature like that the woman had never seen before. She couldn't believe anything else but that it was Goanise himself, and in her terror she dropped the shears, clasped her hands, and forgot to hold on to the goosey gander. As soon as he felt himself freed, he ran toward the door. He didn't give himself time to stop, but as he ran past him, he grabbed the boy by the neckband and carried him along with him. On the stoop he spread his wings and flew up in the air. At the same time he made a graceful sweep with his neck and seated the boy on his smooth downy back. And off they flew, while all of its Scoville stood and stared after them. End of Chapter 3, Part 2 Recorded by Gerald Moe, Tucker, Georgia